Well, for the past two months, we have been in the Olivet Discourse, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew 25. And Lord willing, lest I get struck by lightning, we will finish Matthew chapter 25. It's supposed to be a joke. But you know what? Um, the Hilberts were struck by lightning last night in their house. So you can talk to him, um, talk to Lori about that. I know they've told me and they're telling other people. Um, the story, I get it. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, Lori was, there's, you know, thundering outside lightning and Elroy's taking a shower and says, Elroy, get out of the shower unless we get struck by lightning or something. And then they, about 10 minutes later, they heard a boom, boom, right? And they're struck by lightning. Start a little fire. They're up late last night. So unless the Lord strikes me by lightning, we will finish Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And time and time again, in these chapters, the Lord has been giving us illustration after illustration after illustration to tell us what the judgment scene will be like. In chapter 24, he said the judgment will be swift and unexpected. It's going to come. Like in the days of Noah, the flood just came. Or like a thief in the night. It's going to come swift and unexpected. And so Jesus said in verse 44, Be ready. Be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. At the end of chapter 24, Jesus said the judgment will be like a master returning. And seeing whether his servant was faithful or not. To see whether his servant was busy about doing the work that he was assigned. Or whether he was abusing his authority and slothful and sinful. And so Jesus tells us to be faithful. In chapter 25, Jesus said that the judgment's like a wedding feast in which the bridegroom was delayed. And some virgins brought enough oil to endure the delaying, and some of the virgins didn't. The message there is be prepared. The middle of chapter 25, we looked at this last week. Jesus compared the kingdom to a man who entrusted his money to slaves of varying amounts. Some put their money to work and made more money, and some hid it in the ground, neglecting their duty. And so Jesus told us to be fruitful. Well, this morning we come to the last of the illustrations. He's just banging home to us how we ought to prepare ourselves for the return of Christ. He describes in this parable, he describes as a man who looks upon a flock of animals and and separates between the sheep and the goats, putting his sheep on the right and his goats on the left. And applying to people, the application is really clear. There are two distinct categories of people. There are those who will be with Jesus on his right and will inherit the kingdom. Those who are on his left who will depart from Christ. The thing that distinguishes them is the deeds of mercy that they do. The one on the right, they care for the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked, the sick and the prisoner. And those on the left neglected the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the sick and the prisoners. And these two groups, there will be a group here and there will be a group here. And these people will all be alike in the sense that they've done merciful things. And these people will all be alike in that they haven't done merciful things. And so Jesus tells us really this morning, be merciful. That's the title of my message this morning, be merciful. It's really the application. So to set this whole story in mind, let's begin reading verse 31. Let's read it for you. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you do it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you've done it to me. And then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, most of the illustrations that Jesus has given here on the the Olivet Discourse, in most of them, the judgment has come at the end. Right? In other words, you think about the master who gives some things to his slaves, either assigns them some duties and then goes off or gives them talents and goes off. But when he comes back, that's when the judgment is. Or even with the, the parable of the, the wedding feast. Right? It's when the, the bridegroom is away and then he finally comes back, gets into the feast, and that's when he deals with the judgment. But this illustration uses the judgment head on. The judgment is the first thing we see. It is the thing that consumes the entire story. It's the judgment of the world. It's all about that final day when we all stand before Jesus to give account for our lives. So that's really my first point is the judgment scene. Verses 31 through 33. I want to describe it for you here a little bit. The judgment scene. Jesus begins this story by describing about when it's going to take place. He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. That's really picking up back on chapter 24, verse 30. We read there that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and glory. This will take place, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats judgment, when the Son of Man comes back upon the earth. The whole world will see Him. The whole world will know that Jesus is returning to judge the world. Some will mourn, as it says in chapter 24, verse 30. Some will rejoice because they know that they will be with Christ forever. When Christ comes back, He's coming to claim the throne that's rightfully His. He's coming back to establish His kingdom. I mean, that's what it's meant in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes, He will sit on His glorious throne. His glorious throne is a seat of all authority. And when Jesus sits on the throne, it's going to be a demonstration to all everywhere that Jesus has authority for all time and eternity. It's been established to Him. It's been granted to Him. Make no mistake. He will will be seen on His glorious throne. In fact, we even see this coming in verse 34 a little bit. When Jesus changes terminology from the Son of Man, He slides into this King terminology, right? Just demonstrating that Jesus would be the king sitting on his glorious throne, ruling and reigning over all. My mind, Psalm 2 comes to my mind. I think about Psalm chapter 2 when the nations are resisting the authority of God. The nations are raging. And what does God say? He says, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Who's he talking about? Talking about Jesus. I've installed my king and there he is. Then talking to Jesus, he says, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And Psalm 2 is really fully realized when the Son of Man comes back in all of his glory, sitting on his glorious throne. But Jesus doesn't come alone. He comes, as verse 31 says, with all the angels. Now, this is entirely consistent with all the other accounts that Jesus has given of his coming. 
Matthew chapter 13, in the parables of the tares and the weeds, we see Jesus coming back with his angels, and it's the angels who gather out of all the kingdom, gather out all the stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness. In the parable of the dragnet, Matthew 13, verse 49, it's the angels who take out the wicked from the righteous, separating them. They're the reapers. They're the ones separating them. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, we even see there, it's the angels who are gathering together His elect. Now, it's interesting here that even in verse 31, verse 32, we see Jesus Himself separating them one from another. So is it Jesus separating them or is it the angels? See, He's got to put them all together. Certainly, it's probably the angels doing much of the work, having some authority, and yet it's Jesus Christ who's got all authority overseeing it. I think it's a little bit equivalent to if you go to a ball game or go to a concert sometime, you, you, you see those people in those little yellow vests or something that say security, right? And these are just like college kids. What kind of authority do they have? Not much. But they'll look at your ticket stub, right, when you're coming down trying to get to the box seats. They'll look at your ticket stub and you say... Um, no, you're up there. You need to go back down this ramp and go up and over those stairs. You get over there. Right? They direct you where you should go. Or maybe you come and say, I don't know where this ticket is. Oh, well, you just come right down here. That's where you need to be. It's a little bit like, like that. These angels are going to get these people and they're going to kind of distribute them along with the Son of Man, separating all the nations into two different groups. And these groups are identified as Jesus pictures so well for us. He often does this. He's a master teacher. Taking just the illustrations of life, in this case, farming, in this case, you know, grazing, shepherding, talks about sheep and goats. He says they'll be separated. Now, I did a little research this week. I didn't really know this, but sheep and goats, in fact, even I started my my notes, I started writing, um, sheep and goats are easily distinguished from one another. Then I started reading, and I find out that they're basically the same size. They look almost exactly alike. They're very difficult. Do you know how to tell? A sheep from a goat? Uh, not necessarily. What? Not their heads? No, they look very the same in their head. What do you know? No, not their fur. What? Not their ears. Their tails. That's how you figure them out. A goat's tail goes up, and a sheep's tail goes down. That's how you tell them. That's how you tell them apart. Now, I suppose if you're around a farm, you know, if you're really good, you know, you can spot a sheep from a goat. But for us novices like me, it's a little harder. But that's how you do. Sheep from the goats. You see what goes behind them. You say, excuse me, look at Yep, okay, you go, you go over here. And I think in some sense the angels and Jesus has little difficulty distinguishing between the sheep and the goats. The sheep, anyway, are placed on the right hand of Jesus. The goats on the left. And I'm here to tell you, dear people, that this is the great reality of our lives. When Jesus says here in verse 32 that all the nations will be gathered before Him, I think this means that everyone who has ever lived will be presented before Jesus on that day. Those who are alive at His return will be escorted by the angels into the presence of Jesus and divvied up appropriately. Those who have died first will be raised up And then put right here in this scene, because the judgment is the great reality in all of your lives. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says it like this, It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. So if you look at your life in the broadest of views, like what are the big events? Well, your birth is, your death is, And then your judgment is. Your birth, your death, your judgment. Or, if you're privileged to be alive at the return of Christ, it's your birth and the judgment. I mean, these are like major things in your life. And what it means is that every single one of us is in this story. I'm using the ballgame illustration. Maybe you've been to a ballgame before. I remember doing this once. I'm not going to a lot, but I remember doing this once and... You know, going and watching the Chicago Cubs play at Wrigley Field and was there and, you know, enjoyed the game. And then I came back. It was a day game. So I came back home and I got to watch the news at night, you know, and I got to see the cameras. And I was hoping that maybe they'd get a glimpse of me so I could be famous and be on TV, right? But I was way off in the crowds. And uh, even if the, the camera pointed at me, you couldn't have told 
whether I was there or not because it wasn't focused in well enough. Well, this is like this scene. Jesus tells it just there are two crowds here, but panoramic back. You know, Jesus steps back and says, there's goats on one side and there's sheep on another, and that's what it is. But you know what? If Jesus would take that camera angle of the story and begin to focus and begin to look really at the sheep, you know what he'd find? He'd find Jed Johnson there. And he'd find Andy Krauss there. And he'd find Doug Sosnowski there. And he'd find Kara Plowman there. Kara, where's Kara? Rebecca. Becky. Rachel Plowman. I get it. I get it. We'll find them. We'll all be there. All of us are going to be there. And so when Jesus says, you got the sheep and the goats, we are there. We are in this story. Every single one of us. And the major question really before us this morning I want us to deal with is, where are you going to be? Are you going to be on the right hand of Jesus? On the left hand of Jesus? Let me give you a hint. Sometimes when you're driving along the road, Maybe you you all who are drivers know about this. Sometimes you know, oh, this lane is really bad because a lot of left-hand turners, you know, get caught up there. And maybe this lane's bad on this road because a lot of people stop and a lot of people turn right. You guys know this? Which lanes are the best to drive in? When you're coming to meet Jesus, where do you want to go? Get to the left, okay? Get to your left, which is Jesus' right. You want to be where the sheep are. But Jesus... And the angels will put you where you are. They'll look at your tails, see whether it's pointing up, see if it's pointing down. We'll give you accordingly. And the questions I want to ask you this morning is, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Because that's the question of application, really, that flies out of this text. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Let's look at this first one. Verses 34 to 40, are you a sheep? We see Jesus here giving an invitation to the sheep. It's not given to the goats. It's given only to the sheep. He says in verse 34, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I'm telling you, that is the greatest invitation that you will ever receive in your whole life. It's an invitation to join the greatest party that you will ever attend. I received an invitation this week from uh, Saratoga, California. Senior class. It's a graduation announcement. And this, this announcement invitation said this, the graduating class of 2005 announces the 44th commencement exercise of Saratoga High School, Friday afternoon, June 10th, 4.30 o'clock at Upper Field, Saratoga High School. Now that's an invitation to a party. And you know what they'll do at this party? Graduation. What do they play? Pomp and circumstance. Bum, ba-dum, bum, bum, bum. Well, all of the pomp and circumstance that will be at this party won't even compare to the pomp and circumstance of the biggest party. It'll be the biggest, grandest, most glorious occasion. And if you are a sheep and you are there, you will be blessed... And you will be very rich. Right, look at verse 34. Those who come are identified as being blessed of my Father. And those who come will inherit the kingdom. I mean, this party is a little bit like Christmas as a child. When you come and maybe get showered with gifts. But when you arrive at this party, you're going to be showered with an incredible gift. Look at the gift there. It says you will inherit the kingdom. I mean, just try for a moment to think in your mind of the joys of heaven. I mean, you know, you, you've got enough Bible teaching. You know a little bit about what heaven is like. It says that there's pleasures forevermore in heaven. It's a glorious place. You'll have a glorified, sinless body. Think of the joys there. Think of the pleasures you have. And I will tell you that your experience on this day 
when you inherit the kingdom, will far surpass any of your wildest imaginations. I mean, when we think of our inheritance, we think about what will be given to us when our parents pass away. And most often, right, what happens is parents' earthly possessions get passed on to their children. So you can think about, you know, houses and things. I know I always tease my dad. He, um, there's some books sometimes, uh, you know, hey, Steve, would you like that book? I said, no, Dad, you have that book, and someday I'll have that book. <laughs> sometimes I don't buy books because I know my dad's got those books, and I know that I'll get those books someday. You think about your inheritance, and people, you know, inherit houses or land or bank accounts or stocks, but imagine inheriting now. Okay, think about Imagine inheriting the kingdom of God. That's what this says. Is that a blessing? You inherit the kingdom. To inherit the kingdom means that you'll be there to enjoy all of its pleasures and joys where there's no sorrow, no tears, no sin. Well, you will enjoy perfect fellowship with God. And this isn't an idea that just simply came around right in recent days. God said, well, I guess maybe I'll give him a kingdom. No, look what it says. It says that the Lord was preparing it from the foundation of the world for you. When God was saying in the beginning, He was preparing a kingdom. It took Him six days to create the universe. And it's taken Him thousands of years. He's been working on this glorious kingdom. It's going to be a great time. And you're going to want to be there. But the heart of the passage really comes in verse 35. When Jesus gives his explanation about why the sheep arrive in the kingdom, he said this, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Here there are six expressions of mercy that the sheep did. They gave food, they gave water, they gave housing, they gave clothing, extended compassion, and visited those in prison. These things are things that they did. And now all the world over, the the whole world, I don't care whether you're Christian or non-Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, Muslim, all the world over, all agree upon these six acts that these are acts of love for fellow human beings. I mean, just think about this. Countless secular organizations have as their main purpose to feed the hungry. The world recognizes this is a good thing to do to help people. Even in our own city, we have a food bank here in Rockford. Not religious. I think it's a secular organization just to get food to help feed the hungry christians and non-christians alike are agreed that providing shelter and clothing for those who lack is a worthy cause organizations like habitat for humanity build homes for people who are desperately needed in our city there are places you can give clothes right salvation army will come and will take your clothes right Lori? they'll take so that they can distribute then among other people there are even secular organizations that do that hospitals recognize the kindness of those who come and visit the sick. Right? The good thing that that is. I worked for a hospital for six years, and I know of how much they cared for the people coming in because it was important that they would come and visit the sick. It was a kind thing that they would do. Prisons recognize the need for those to come and visit prisoners. Right? And people in this world know and recognize when they do a kind deed. I mean, uh, think about... In my mind, one person goes to mind. Think about Mother Teresa. She's like the Gandhi, if you will. She's lifted up in the eyes of the world. It's doing great good. In 1962, she received the Padma Shri Prize, whatever that is, for extraordinary service. In 1972, the Indian government awarded her a prize for all the work that she did. In 1979, she won the Nobel Peace Prize for doing just these kind of things. In 1985, President Reagan presented her the Medal of Freedom, the highest U.S. civilian award. In 1996, she became only the fourth person in the world to receive honorary U.S. citizenship. 
And the Catholic Church since 1997 has had an intense movement to canonize her as a saint. All because, why? The world, Christian, non-Christian, recognize these deeds as deeds of mercy and kindness. And these are the sorts of things that Jesus is going to point out to him before the judgment. But the most interesting thing I want you to notice here is that these, these sheep were a little bit confused. I mean, Jesus said, you did this for me. You gave me something to eat. You gave me drink. You invited me in. You clothed me. You visited me. You came to me. These sheep were dumbfounded. They said, what are you talking about, Jesus? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or when were you thirsty? Or when were you a stranger? I don't remember you being naked or sick. Or what were you in prison for? I don't remember any of this. And I think that this ought to help give us some clue in terms of even understanding the attitude and disposition of the sheep as they're coming into judgment. I mean, they are surprised at what they've just been going about doing. They often, I believe, aren't even aware of the full impact of the merciful things that they are doing. And I think this very surprise helps to show us that they weren't ever expecting to earn and merit their way in. It shows that they they didn't put a lot of thought in their minds about how much that all these, these duties, these high, wonderful things are doing year in, year out to earn their salvation. They weren't thinking about that. And I'm here to tell you this morning that you don't get into heaven by being merciful. Mother Teresa, as merciful as she was, it wasn't by her merciful deeds that she would ever merit her way into heaven. The scriptures are abundantly clear. You're saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves, the gift of God, not works that no one should boast. Works of kindness and works of mercy here don't save you. But, okay, you got a but, you got to listen to this. This is the key. It's obvious in this passage that works of kindness and mercy are very, very important. They're evidences of you being saved. I think the illustration is so good about the sheep and the goat is that they walk before, but it's what goes behind them that you see. You're saved by grace as you go forward, but it's what's behind you that really tells the difference. And that's why Paul continues. I quoted Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but Ephesians 2, 10 says that you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, you're saved by grace and that grace will produce works. And in this passage here, it produces works of kindness and mercy. If you think this morning that you are saved, but have no works to give evidence to your salvation, that you are saved by the blood of Christ, the Bible says that your faith is dead. If you say, I have a faith, but have no works, what does James say? Your faith is dead. Let me read it for you. James chapter 2, 14 to 17. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warned to be filled, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And even if you think through what James is talking about, he's talking about here clothing, he's talking about food, he's talking about the same things here in the sheep and the goat's judgment, clothing and food. And what James is saying is if you have a faith, you will give clothing, you will give food. You won't just say, oh, be warm to be filled and just satisfy yourself right where you are. Right? If you claim to have faith but don't have works, your faith is dead and useless. You're not a sheep, but you are a goat. You know, and this is all throughout the Bible. Even Paul wrote, to Titus, he says of those in Crete, there are those who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. And really on the judgment day, this is how it works. Because the only way to enter heaven is by grace through faith. But Jesus is going to look and examine the works that you did or didn't do and will divide between the sheep and the goats based upon their deeds. And that's what forms a division. 
between the sheep and the goats. Those who are merciful to others demonstrate themselves to be sheep. And those who weren't merciful demonstrate themselves to be goats. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 40. He says, the king says to them, truly I say to you. Now, whenever Jesus says truly, he says this. Okay, get this. This is really, really important. If you've tuned out, come back in. This is really important what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of the brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Right? In other words, the manner in which you treat the brothers and sisters of Christ is equivalent to treating Jesus in the exact same way. See, there's a connection between Jesus and his people that's far more than you realize. To feed his brothers and sisters is to feed Jesus. To give drink to his brothers and sisters is to give drink to Jesus. To house them or to clothe them is to house or clothe Jesus. To visit them when sick or in prison is to visit Jesus himself. And the question comes up, well, who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus? That's what he says here, right? You did it to one of these brothers of mine. Jesus is identifying these are my brothers. I think the Bible's pretty clear. The brothers of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I don't think, I can't remember of any other occasion which Jesus talked about brothers being all of mankind. You know, some people say they believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all mankind. Now, there's some truth to that. But when Jesus talks about my brothers, it is the fatherhood of God and my brothers are my people is my church is who he's talking about. In fact, that was clear in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus was teaching and his earthly mothers and brothers were seeking him. And Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers? And do you remember what he said? He stretched out his hand and he said, behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he's my brother and sister and mother. See, we are so connected with Christ. Christ is a church. We are his body. He is the head. We are so connected that to care and love for the body of Christ is to care and love for the head, is to care and love for Jesus. To receive the brothers, sisters of Jesus is to receive Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the gospel. And he told his disciples, he who receives you receives me. Right? See, there's that connectionness. To persecute his brothers or sisters is to persecute Jesus. When Saul was on that dusty road to Damascus, Jesus came from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church. He was persecuting his brothers and sisters. But we're so connected, the church is, that to treat the body of Christ is the same way as you treat Jesus. Having said that, don't view this as a giant loophole to say, oh, You know, the guy on the street, I don't have to have any care of him because he's not in the church. I would say not so fast. If you see an unbeliever with a need and you can meet that need, I say meet that need. And be merciful and kind and help them. And though Jesus places his emphasis here upon the church, I don't think it excludes those outside of the church. You know, think about this. If God has saved you and his grace is working in your life, he's going to change you and your disposition, your attitude is going to be merciful. And it's going to just kind of gush out. And it ought not to be, well, distinguishing so much to say, oh, well, here's the church and only these. That's only the place where I'm going to show my mercy. Paul said it great. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are the household of the faith. In other words, I think Paul is saying, Let your life be patterned by works of charity. Doing good to all men, regardless of whether or not they are a Christian, but when it gets down to it, make the church your priority for your merciful deeds, because that is the body of Christ. And so I ask you, church family, how are you doing in your deeds of mercy? Are you feeding poor people? 
Are you providing shelter and clothing for those without? How many people are you visiting? Shut-ins? Prisoners? Where are your deeds of mercy? As a church, I'm excited about the opportunities we have with those in Nepal. I mean, they are one of the poorest nations in the world. We are one of the richest. I've told you before, I believe this with all my heart, that we live in Disneyland. Is there anybody who goes to Disneyland who's like poor and without? No, you just jump on any ride you want. You're free to rain. Food's expensive, certainly. Right? Listen, but we are in Disneyland, but there are poor and hungry people out there in the world, and we have a chance with Nepal to help the hungry. There are people there in Nepal who need houses and clothes. There are sick people abounding in Nepal, and at times even in Nepal, people are in prison for the gospel. And we'll have great opportunities over the next few years and hopefully decades to come to help those people there. But let's not think that our ministry to Nepal satisfies this requirement here for deeds of mercy. It's really interesting that I, um, this is my custom, I listened to a man who uh, was preaching through this passage. And uh, you, you don't know who he is, some obscure church. But he's a, he's a pastor of a big church, a couple thousand people I think. And um, when he got to this text, his, the way he preached this text was merely to say, look at all the things that we are doing as a church. He spent a lot of time talking about how they were feeding hungry people and how they were providing clothes and were providing shelter and how they were visiting shut-ins and how they were doing that. And all the outreach ministries are going on in the church. And I was very encouraged by that. I was very challenged by that. I was convicted by the lack of things that our church is doing. In some ways I thought, well, maybe they are a big church and you can attribute a lot of their activities to their size. But I think at any rate they have a great heart for that. And I was encouraged. But what, what struck me with the message was, is that when you get all down to it, his basic message was this. He says, if you give money to the church, you're supporting these people, you're doing these things. So, just give to the church and you're doing those things. And... I want you to look here at the words of Jesus. There's no talk here of you gave money to feed the poor or you gave money to house the homeless or you gave money to support the local pregnancy care center or you gave money to support Chuck Colson's prison ministry. The talk is this. You gave. You gave. You invited me in. You clothed me. You visited me. I mean, it's talking about a personal involvement. That's what it's talking about. And as wonderful as Nepal is for us to help a needy country, the fact is many of you won't, won't go. I mean, just the logistics and costs. And certainly you can give to this, and I encourage you, and there is a blessing you'll receive. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive, and I think there is an extent with this pastor, as he preached this sermon, as you do give of your resources to these things, you are helping those ways. But I want you to see the importance of your own personal involvement, of you yourself giving something, of you inviting people in, of you giving clothes, <coughs> of you visiting. You might say, well, where will I find these people? They're in Rockford. You can get involved at some of these compassion ministries, a local pregnancy care center. There are many needy people there, especially the babies fighting for their lives. You can show your act of mercy by going and helping and being involved there. Or the Rockford Rescue Mission. Many needy people there have hit rock bottom. There certainly are opportunities to help there. Hand in hand, life on life. You know, you also find them here at Rock Valley Bible Church, though. There are people here struggling financially. There are. Giving food and drink to them would come as a blessing. Maybe things are a little tight. You say, here, I just do food and here, I, I help you with that. You can do that. There are people here having difficulty at times meeting the rent payment. Giving money to help them in their need would be a wonderful thing to do. There are people here who are strangers to you. I don't think that every single one of you knows everybody single one of you else in the church. Because I'm, I'm surprised sometimes when I talk to some people and they say, oh, 
who is that again? It's, it's a, I guess everything kind of comes through me as the pastor, I guess. But there are lots of their people, pockets. There are strangers, even amongst us, as small as we are. And you can invite them in. What a wonderful blessing it would be to do that. There are people at Rock Valley Bible Church who need visiting. The nursing home. There are people at the nursing home that need visiting. They would like visiting. There are people who are housebound who would be blessed by a, a visit. You don't have to look out even of our church. And the way to know this is just to get to know people and then to figure out where they are and to figure out whether they're struggling financially. You give them food. Give them clothing. Give them help. You know, pass on some baby clothes. Pass on this or that. Give them something. When they're sick, go visit them in the hospital. There have been times people have come up to me pretty critical of Rock Valley Bible Church saying, you know, we don't have much diversity among us. I mean, look at all of us. We're all in our 30s or 40s, for the most part. We're all have full quivers, full of children. By and large, our jobs support us pretty well. right? We're all married. But where are the single people? What about people of different skin color? What about people who are, are down and out? Where are the people that Jesus calls, even in verse 40, He calls them the least of these he said that the least of these, right? these are the people, you know what I'm talking about, different economic statuses, difficult to love. You know what? Those people have come into our midst. And sadly to say to our shame, those sorts of people have left our midst. And perhaps we've lost opportunities to reach out to them in mercy and kindness and helping them. If you really want some names, I can give you some names. I'm not trying to point that out. But there are people in hurting circumstances coming to this church who we can show great acts of kindness to in seeking to help them. There are. You don't need to look far away. You don't have to look to Nepal. You have to look here. And I just ask you, as a church, if you want more diversity which is good. Heaven is filled with men from every tribe and tongue and nation. There is diversity in heaven. There ought to be diversity among us. When someone comes in who may be like, oh, I'm not sure about them, it's just your attitude. You've got to have a merciful attitude. Boy, there's someone who really needs help. I'm really going to seek to help that person. Take it upon yourself. Let's mobilize a hundred of us to be ministers and servants of God doing merciful things for other people. Right? Those who are difficult to love, who are different than we are, invite them to your house. How many people of this church have been to your house? Share your resources. How many things have you given to people of this church? Just give it away. Let's play hot potato, okay? Let's, this, it's your stuff. And then, no, it's your stuff. No, it's your stuff. No, let's bounce it around, right? Be giving. If there's a need, give it. People need to be encouraged. Boy, call them on the phone. Visit them. Encourage them. And do it to the least. And I just ask you, right, to, to look around and think about what kindness and mercy you have shown to the people even at Rock Valley Bible Church. Because if we don't do it here, we're not going to do it at the Christ of Pregnancy Care Center. We're not going to do it at Rock for Rescue Mission. We're not going to do it in Nepal. We've got to do it here among us. And to pull people in who are in those circumstances. Because there are plenty this week, many of you know, um, my family was away from me this week. And I feel like I was showered with blessings of mercies and kindness. Uh, I was at homes several nights. I mean, I was booked every free evening. I was at one of your homes for dinner. And I thank you for that. And I had a great time. I had to turn down three or four dinner invitations because of so many people. Hey, your, your family's gone. Why don't you come? I turned down several. Even today, I turned down some. I said, oh, I'm sorry. We would have done that. I said, no, no, no. I just turned you down. I had a man come over and help uh, blacktop my driveway this week. The kids are gone. Yeah, everyone's gone. I didn't know how to blacktop a driveway. And he spent more than eight hours with me working on a driveway. as an act of mercy and kindness. And maybe you might find it easy to serve me and help me on the pastor of the church. Okay? I ask you, though, 
the same kindness that was extended to me this past week, do it to, as Jesus says, the least of them. I'm not going to define that. I just have you think in your mind of least people, people who need help, people who you can see, and you do these things that you did to me to other people. I would encourage you to do that. Jesus calls us to help with real needs. So how are you doing? If you want to be a sheep and enter into the joy of your master, your life would be, should be full of these merciful deeds. Because of those who don't are goats. Which is my next point, right? Point number three. Are you a goat? We're not talking the, the goat that cursed the Chicago Cubs. Isn't there some kind of billy goat curse? Or is that the socks? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you can help me with that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about this is a goat. This is the one who didn't show forth merciful deeds. And everything that was true of the sheep was not true of the goats. The sheep were on the right. The goats were on the left. The sheep demonstrated their love to Jesus by merciful deeds. The goats had no deeds to testify of their love to Jesus. Oh, they may have had great religious things. Right? Remember Matthew 7? I prophesy in your name. I cast out demons. Look at all these wonderful things. But those people didn't do merciful things to the least. Uh, You just have to see, dear people, of, of the impact. Even Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to one of my disciples, you will not lose your reward. And you need to realize that just your extent of your simple kindness to someone that you do, that you don't think anything about, For years to come, Jesus will know and notice that. Just even the littlest of things. The sheep demonstrated their kind in these little ways. The goats didn't. The sheep were blessed. The goats were cursed. The sheep were invited and welcomed into the inheritance of the kingdom, but the goats were sent away from Jesus into eternal fire. Look at verse 46. I just want to skip down there and really just look at this. Because for all this other stuff about what you've done, I mean, everything I applied to the sheep, I really question. You can say, well, maybe I'm not doing that. Maybe I am a goat. But coming down to verse 46, kind of the summation, the conclusion of anything, it puts as clear as any passage. It says, these goats will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, there's a difference. Punishment and life. Goats get punishment. Sheep gets life. Now, sadly, there are those who say and profess they believe the Bible who deny the teaching that hell is a real place. Some say hell will only be temporary. Some say that those who fail to reach heaven will be in hell for a while and eventually be annihilated. Now, those who believe that, I even got a book on my shelf that says, Hell on Trial. Because people are doubting whether hell really exists or not. They, they've never read this verse. Oh, they have. They explain it away. But look at it. There's intense parallelism here at all. Everybody has agreed, particularly those people, evangelicals, who are denying the existence of hell. They believe that heaven yet goes on forever. But see, hell is only temporary. But they miss the parallelism of verse 46. These go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. If the righteous will live forever eternal life, so also will the wicked be punished just as eternally. Everlasting, endless time. It uses the same word. And that, by the way, is a horrific picture. In fact, I think this is probably one of the most horrific pictures in all the Bible describing what's going to take place. Eternal Punishment. Think about crucifixion. That's pretty bad, right? I mean, we've talked about Christ's crucifixion bodily, what took place on the cross. The suffering as he's up there and trying to breathe and intense pains in his wrists. And he's enduring punishment, right? Punishment for our sins that put him there. He's being punished, and that's terrible. That lasted for three hours. Imagine eternal punishment. Being crucified for eternity. 
That's what verse 46 is talking about. Being burned to death is an awful way to die. Up on a stake or something, a platform with straw and stuff all around. The match is lighted and burns. It's a terrible way to die. But imagine burning forever. That's what verse 46 is talking about. That's how Jesus described hell. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told us two people. There was a rich man and a poor man. The rich man lived his life, right, in luxury. Turned his back upon the poor man who just longed to be fed with crumbs which are falling from his master's table, from his rich man's table. And the, the rich man didn't feed the hungry wasn't merciful and kind to those whom he could, just like in the sheep and the goat's judgment. And because he hadn't repented of his sin, he suffered immensely. Jesus said that the rich man was facing constant agony in the flame, suffering all the time. That's what verse 46 is talking about. As joyous and eternal, as happy as heaven is, so also the contrast to that as awful and terrible and devastating and awful will be hell. Now, some people will try to um, explain away hell based upon the character of God. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon one time on this verse, verse 46, and dealt with these very well. I could read you Jonathan Edwards, but I'm going to summarize because it will help you, I think. But you can read it. Uh, it the full, full quote here will be on, on the Internet. But basically people say that eternal punishment is contrary to the justice of God. I mean, how can you punish someone forever for a sin they committed on earth? And Jonathan Edwards says, oh, but you misunderstand sin. We agree that punishment ought to be equal to the crime. But, and I, I guess I will read some Jonathan Edwards. He says this. If the evil of sin be infinite, as the punishment is, then it is manifest that the punishment is no more proportional to the sin punished and is no more than sin deserves. And if the obligation to love, honor, and obey God be infinite, which it is, your obligation to love and worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is an infinite obligation, to love an infinitely holy and pure God, then the sin which is the violation of this obligation is a violation of infinite obligation. And so it is an infinite evil. He says, Sin being an infinite evil deserves an infinite punishment. An infinite punishment is no more than it deserves. Therefore, such punishment is just. When people question the justice of God, by condemning the goats to eternal punishment is because they don't understand sin. They don't understand the infinite heinousness that it is to an absolutely pure and holy God that their sin requires eternal punishment. Now think about the cross of Christ and everything Christ did. Kind of just, Jesus paying for all this infinite punishment that we deserve. They also say it's against the, the justice of God. They say it's against the mercy of God. They say God is merciful. How can a merciful God condemn someone to eternal punishment? And Edwards again says something to the effect that they misunderstand God. First of all, mercy is always seen in scriptures as free and given and gracious. It is never seen as something that God is obligated to do. God is not obligated in any way, dear people, to be merciful to us. And then Edwards points out that the fact that God in His providence inflicts great calamities upon mankind shows that even though He's merciful, He is still willing to afflict mankind. And if he does inflict great calamities upon mankind, 
why can he not inflict punishment forever as well and still have that be completely consistent within his character? I mean, you think about... Think about the accusation. You can't have an eternal hell because God is merciful. Think about... He's all merciful is basically what they say. He's all merciful. He can't do that. Think about an all merciful judge in the court system. Think about if Saddam Hussein was going to stand before an all merciful Iraqi judge. And that judge said, Boy, you've committed all these crimes, Saddam, but I just have great compassion and kindness to you. and Innocent. What would happen? Total outrage because he is slandering his judicial duty. And the same is with God as well. For God just to blanket everything and just say, I'll just overlook it. It's to transgress his justice. And I'll just say this, that for those who doubt eternal hell, they don't understand the infinite wretchedness of sin. It's interesting to see for what sin these goats go to hell. The goats go to hell by sins of omission. Think about that. It's sins of omission. In this parable, Jesus doesn't even begin to address the wicked things the goats did. He doesn't say, you were greedy and selfish blasphemers and adulterers and drunkards and idolaters. He doesn't say even one bad thing they did. It's the things they didn't do that puts them in hell. And I think about how many people today spend their lives consumed with their own affairs, put their time in at the job, come home to their nice little family inside their home, spend countless evenings watching the television set, attend church on Sunday, live moral, upright lives, staying away from the alcohol, staying away from the R movies, husbands and wives faithful to one another, bringing up Jesus' name at home, praying. But when it comes down to showing genuine mercy to others who happen to live outside of their house, void. Those are the sorts of people that find themselves to be goats. Churchgoers who aren't merciful to those outside their house. So what sort of proof do you have that you've been merciful to others? How much money have you given away? How much clothing have you given? How many strangers have you taken into your home? How much time have you spent visiting those who can't get out? You know, I really struggled on the sermon title this morning when I said, Be Merciful. Because my exhortation to you isn't so much, Go be merciful and earn your way. But my exhortation to you is, Are you merciful? Because that's what we need really to be. Because Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who extend genuine compassion and care for those of real needs because God will show incredible kindness and compassion and mercy to you on the day of judgment. Well, there's a phrase we use, right? We say the proof is in the pudding. What we mean by that is that you don't know how the food turned out until you actually taste it. I baked some bread this morning for our potluck and I hope I hope I put all the right ingredients. I was relieved this morning when the bread was rising. Let's put it that way. For the proof is in the pudding. I hope I put in all the ingredients. I'm just thinking now, this bread needs salt. My, my bread might be a little bland, okay? But the proof is in the taste. And also here, when you stand before Jesus, the judgment day, the proof is going to be in the mercy. It's not saying that you love Jesus. It gives you any credence to your faith in Christ. It's when you see it in action that the whole world will know, angels will know, Jesus will know whether your faith was real or not. I just ask you, is your faith real? Is it being demonstrated by deeds of mercy to the least of these? Or is your faith constantly being exposed in the fact that you don't show mercy to others? Church family, let's be merciful that we might all be sheep that last day. Let's pray together.
Oh Lord, I pray for these words to sink deep into our hearts. I pray they would convict us of sin. I pray they'd convict us of righteousness. I pray that they would convict us of the judgment to come. Lord, what a dreadful thing it would be to be a goat on that final day. To be cast away to eternal punishment. And so God, I pray that you would be gracious. Extend your mercy as undeserved as it is to us. And bring it to us free and rich. God, for those who are goats this morning, I pray you'd convert them. I pray your spirit would come upon them that they would know of sins forgiven. That you would fill them with a a changed heart and a changed life. We know that Christ died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Christ who rose again on their behalf. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be people to live not for ourselves, but to live for Christ, helping and serving and feeding and giving to those who have needs. That at the end day, we would partake and participate in the glories of the resurrection of the kingdom that we will inherit. May that stir us on to endure the momentary light affliction, which isn't worthy to be compared with the glory that's revealed to us in Christ. May that stir us on. God, I pray, even as we have been thinking about the return of Christ the last two months at church, may our hearts have been renewed, stirred afresh to long for the day when Jesus will come and end this world and bring us up to be with Him forever. Lord, these things we submit to You. May Your Spirit work among us to convince us of these truths and to manifest it in our lives. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.